This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. This conversation you're about to hear is one I've been looking forward to for some time and touches on many aspects of sport performance as it relates to plant-based diets. One of my favorite topics. (laughs) Joining me is David Goldman, a registered dietitian with specialist training in sports nutrition and strength and conditioning. Notably, he was the chief science advisor for the Game Changers film and was heavily involved in its production, something I was sure to ask about. David has a master's degree in applied physiology and nutrition and is board certified specialist in sports nutrition, as well as a certified strength and conditioning specialist. This combination of expertise allows him to work closely with high level athletes towards pursuing sports specific performance goals. Beyond working with athletes, David was the first registered dietitian to work at Facebook headquarters, helping implement a nutrition program for employees, and he was director of nutrition and fitness at True North, a health center in Santa Rosa, California, that offers medically supervised prolonged water-only fasting, another thing that we get into in this conversation. So our discussion spans a range of topics, but highlights include David's work with the Game Changers, of course, protein needs for athletes, whether vegan athletes are at a disadvantage because our diets do not contain creatine, the health benefits of water fasting, and things to consider as an athlete if you want or already do practice some form of intermittent fasting. I hope you enjoy this one. David, it's a pleasure to finally interview you. I've been following your work for some time now, and I'm excited that this is actually happening. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And I'm flattered that you've been following my work. I, uh, it's very humbling. Yeah, you've uh, recently, I came across um, your work originally. You had an article published on creatinine, creatine sorry, um, as it relates to plant-based diets. And that's kind of what um, tipped me onto your work. But obviously, you've been involved in the Game Changers and you've been um, working with high-level athletes for some time. So I'd love to dive into um, definitely some of your research and um everything that you've been doing. But um, first, I kind of wanted to start out by asking, as an exercise physiologist and nutritionist, you've worked with athletes of all levels, from recreational to Olympic. And maybe just to start out, I thought it'd be fun to ask you, what do you think separates great athletes from simply good athletes? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to ask you the same question, because I'm curious Mm. what you think as a highly competitive athlete. So I wish I could just say it was like work ethic. I wish I could say it was that. I'm afraid to say, being totally honest, I really do think it's mostly genetics. I really do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked so hard personally. I was a competitive snowboarder um, and I've really tried hard with a whole bunch of other sports. I just don't think that um, no matter what I do, I'm going to be able to pull off, say, a 40-inch vertical jump. Um, it's just never going to happen or even a 30 inch vertical. I'd be happy with uh, 25 probably. <laughs> so I think genetics really do play a, a really big um, role for, for fantastic athletes. But I do think work ethic plays into it. I think a big part is also the willingness to take constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. I think that goes a long way. There are a lot of people who, who their ego um, blocks their own headway and that's a, a shame. Um, but then certainly dialed in lifestyle factors like training and recovery, you know, like sleep and uh, diet certainly plays a, a significant role too. What do you think? Yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that. I like the genetic, you almost need that foundation to build from, but you can't just get, well, I guess there are some 
<laughs> very unique individuals that can get by on just genetics. But for most of us, like you have to have that genetic base. And then I think it's it's the small things you do each and every day. It's that consistency piece that mm-hmm. I think probably really stands out. But I think that also relates to consistency in doing the the diet and the lifestyle correctly, consistency in, in training, regular consistency and like willing to put aside your social life to train when you need to, those sorts of things. That would be yeah. more my impression. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree very much. The um, the the guy who I work with now more than um, uh, the the company that, that I'm I'm supporting right now, the CEO was uh, he played in the NFL for the Oakland Raiders, <laughs> and he worked his his butt off. He worked so hard, and he was able to. I mean, to make it to the NFL is incredible, but um, there were some some guys on the team who just had this gift. And they just could show up on a few hours of sleep and crush it on the field. And he, he made it, I think it was like one season before he got injured and had to stop. But uh, yeah, it's incredible to see. Like that was a guy with, with just A plus work ethic. Um, we've since worked on the diet part of it. Uh, and that's now dialed in. I think his recovery would be a whole lot better now. But yeah, it's really incredible to see how, you know, the things that we can get in line um, really can go a long way. And at the same time, like you said, you put it really well when you said the foundation of, uh, of genetics, you know, there's just nothing we can do uh, about that right now. So, yeah. No, I I can tell just by listening to you speak that you really have a passion for this high performance and optimal performance and squeezing like everything you can out of your potential, which I I love. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering how much of an influence, because this is your background after all, nutrition, how much of an influence do you think nutrition plays? So at this elite level, can like a bad diet make or break your performance? Um, So... I mean, we know that that uh, diet absolutely does influence performance. The um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, uh, which you know, when you become a, a registered dietitian uh, in the United States, this is how you you know you come through this organization. And they had a position paper in 2016 that they co-authored with the Dietitians of Canada and the American College of Sports Medicine, and they said that. Uh, performance and recovery from sporting activities are enhanced by well-chosen nutrition strategies, right? It's clear, like this is the consensus. This is the, um, this is definitive. Um, most of the research though is not done in really, really, really elite athletes, right? I mean, there's some, but it's mostly done in recreational, uh, exercisers. So, um, (laughs) I've worked with, I would say about a dozen NHL players who would, and I'm saying NHL, I'm calling NHL out specifically in this way, because, um, I don't know. I just feel like the, the, this was far (laughs) more common in this population who would get absolutely drunk, uh, the night before, you know, a really important competition the following day. And you just watch them skate and play. And they were extraordinary, even doing the exact opposite, you know, eating fast food and, not taking care of their sleep and not really eating super well. I mean, that's an understatement. And they would just come out and and destroy it. So, um, you know, I, I do think that there would be room for improvement for these people uh, if they did eat a whole lot better. I think that there is room for improvement. But I, I also think that there's something of a ceiling effect mm. where, you know, when you when you reach a certain level, 
it can be really hard to bump up above that. So I guess the short response is I do think that eating really well can help these high performing athletes uh, do better, but that when you have nine out of 10 pieces dialed in, um, that goes a long way and you'll get less, you know, diminishing returns Mm -hmm. relative to if you had one piece dialed in and now you hit some of the other ones. So, uh, but I do think that any athlete at any level can experience market improvements from improving their diet for sure. I do. Yeah, no, totally. That, that makes sense. And I guess that's almost intuitive. It's like the, the lower you start, the more you potentially have to gain and improve from making some of these, these changes. So yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, I'd love to take a a step back briefly and just discuss a little bit of your background. And if you could just Mm -hmm. kind of, um, for the audience, um, explain like, what is your background, um, and what you're doing for work currently? Oh, sure. Um, so my background, you, you mean, uh, like academically, professionally? Yeah, sort of stuff? yeah, I'd love to hear. Um, so, uh, I studied in my undergrad, um, uh, kinesiology, applied physiology, psychology, and Spanish. Spanish, I just thought was a, <laughs> a cool one because you spend all, I spent high school learning it. I didn't want to lose it. So yeah. I, uh, I enjoy doing that. Um, in graduate school, um, I studied applied physiology and nutrition. I got a degree as a registered dietitian. Um, I've since gotten the um, board certification. So it's a CSSD, which stands for Certified Specialist in Sports Dietetics. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the dietitians who work with professional athletes and teams, this is a really good credential for them to have. Um, I also have the CSCS, which is the Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist certification from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. So that's helpful for, you know, for strength and conditioning. I I really, really like um, having one foot in each, uh, you know, domain of nutrition and exercise. So I worked in strength and conditioning um, at Columbia University for their athletics uh, department. and concurrently, I supported their athletes with sports nutrition. So I really like both of those pieces. In, uh, I worked in obesity research at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. And same thing. I, I help you know, sort of build um, diets uh, and did things like exercise testing, you know, measuring VO2 max. And um, we were exploring insulin sensitivity and doing a whole bunch of really fun things. Again, it was, you know nutrition, exercise, and sort of health and see how that all plays out. Um, I worked at Facebook headquarters. Um, I was their first registered dietitian and helped to build um, what I think is now a really thriving nutrition program um, to serve the employees there in Menlo Park, California. That was a really extraordinary um, job. I loved it. I mean, it was really incredible, a totally different environment than anything I had ever experienced and probably ever will again. Um, I worked at True North Health Center as the director of nutrition and fitness. So True North Health Center um, is an incredible uh, integrative health facility in Northern California. They uh, medically supervise water-only fasting and they um, use a whole food plant-based diet that's free of added salt, oil, and sugar to really, really help people get their health back on track. Um, 
That was a wonderful experience. Have you heard of them, by the way? Oh, yeah, I definitely have. And I want to dive into that a little bit more later. I have some questions on like the water fasting and your recent study you published. So we can touch on that a little bit later. So just bookmark that. Sounds good. And by the way, they accept uh, interns. And if you were able to... (laughs) um, I I could be wrong, but I believe internationally. I might Um, have to look into that. Yeah, it's a, an incredible experience mm-hmm. and something really worth um, learning about. It's such an incredible tool to be able to do that. Um, so, yeah, so there was that. So I guess we'll bookmark that. <laughs> um, the, right, I worked as the chief science advisor to the Game Changers mm-hmm. uh, documentary. I want to ask about that as well. <laughs> cool, cool. Sounds good. Yeah, that was a really fun project. I did that for about four or five years or so. And I'm really enamored with the team. They're really... Um, brilliant, uh, full-hearted people who I, I really enjoy. And, uh, yeah. And so also throughout and also now I'm working with, um, Metabyte, which is, uh, it's like a, I think of it as a, it's like a, a digital nutrition coaching platform. I use it to amplify my efforts with my patients. So it's really helpful for me. You know, if, if I'm giving the same advice, if I'm, um, you know, and it starts to sort of get time consuming to go through the same loops and if I can automate that and, and mm. really extend my efforts, um, this is the tool that I used to do it. And it, it helped me when I was just working individually, one-on-one with people, when I'd work with whole teams, um, when I'd work, you know, with dozens, um, of people at a time, I can, you know, create these peer support groups so that they can, help each other out as much as I can help them. And it's really helpful and efficient. And so that's what I've been putting a lot of my effort into now. That's very cool. Yeah. You sent me a link to Metabyte, so I can definitely link to that below in the show notes for anyone interested, but it seems like quite a, um, uh, innovative organization for like, um, yeah, just as you said, reaching individuals and groups and like population level and making dietary changes that way. It's very cool. Thanks. Um, Yeah. I really like it. Yeah, your career is so diverse. You've done so many fascinating things. Thank you. I'm curious, when did you first um, become interested in plant-based nutrition specifically? Or yeah, Um, when did that come across your radar? Yeah, yeah. Um, So when I was a kid, I grew up in a a regular family in New York and uh, everybody ate meat um, and plenty of it. And my mom read to me and my brother, she read to us a book about, um, you know, what happens behind the scenes in animal agriculture. And she didn't read it to me to try to affect me in some deep way. Um, we just grew up with, you know, informed decision-making. So everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do. We just want you to have the information. Um, so then you can make your own decisions. So she was reading to me this book, um, while we were sitting at like a a friendly's restaurant eating chicken fingers. And she's reading to me about like the process that it takes to get the chicken to become the finger on my plate. And as a kid, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like that's, that's terrible. Um, I I'm not eating this anymore. And I think my mom was really taken aback. And she and my dad became afraid that I was going to become protein deficient and, and probably die at a young age. So they paid me like a quarter, a chicken wing to eat, uh, 
you know, these foods so that I wouldn't be in any kind of real trouble. Anyway, um, so I was vegetarian then for uh, a number of years. And then when I went to college and started training more intensely, um, started, you know, really caring more about athletic performance. And um, I was under the impression that I had to eat meat and animal products in order to, to perform. Like, I mean, that was just, that was a really rampant myth. I think it still is. And so I remember this horrible day where I opened up a can of tuna fish and was like, all right, like I have to, I have to, I, I guess I have to do this. If I want to actually perform, this is something that I need to do. And so I remember doing it just because I saw like the protein content on the can of fish. I was like, well, it takes a lot of beans to get that. This can will help. So I did that. Um, and I did that up until I was 27 years old. During that time, I went to grad school, well, undergrad and grad school, um, just to really understand this better and to see, did it really, was this really necessary? Um, was it even helpful? And on my 27th birthday, I, I realized that I had learned enough. I had determined that this was just not um, helpful. Uh, let alone necessary. And I said, I, I think I can go back to, you know, to, to removing these foods from my diet and eating a more plant-based diet. And so I made that transition. And then I, I think I became a healthier person over time with each successive job, like going to True North um, and living in an environment where it's just standard practice to only eat whole plant foods. Um, so I, I went on this transition from being a moderately healthy person on a plant-based diet to, I think, now a, a very healthy person on a plant-based diet by virtue of removing more processed junk. So, um, so yeah, so that's where I am now at 38, almost 39. Um, I guess it's nearly my 12-year anniversary of uh, eating this way, and I'm really proud of it. And I, I feel like I'm as strong and capable as ever, and, and I wouldn't do it any other way. Amazing. You're definitely a very positive um, influence in the plant-based community. So thank you for all the work you've been doing to kind of oh, thank you. inspire others to take up this lifestyle. Um, oh, I appreciate that. 12 years as well. I just passed my nine-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. That's really cool. <laughs> Getting up I, there. I don't know. I don't know if it's appropriate or if I'm able to ask you. I know, you know, I, I'd love to ask you how, what brought you on board too. I, don't, I know, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you've talked about it in previous episodes and I don't, I, I just wanted to yeah, I haven't yes, talked about it too much. Yeah. Um, for me, it was, I was working just the front desk of a gym like like years ago, well, nine years ago. And one of the members was really adamant that I needed to read the China study. So uh, from mm-hmm. T, uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. So I read the China study. I read the Thrive Diet by uh, Brendan Brazer. And that was the book that kind of like, oh, athletes can do this too. So mm-hmm. it was the kind of the mix of those two. It's like the best for your health, um, your athletic performance can improve on a plant-based diet. And then I just went down the rabbit hole from there. And awesome. yeah, it was a pretty quick uh, transition after that. But And then of course, after now it's like the environment and the animals. And even if it wasn't healthier, I really don't think I could go back. But yeah, that was the initial catalyst for me. Yeah, I totally get it. I really, uh, I really get it. And those were fantastic books, The China mm-hmm. Study and Thrive, I remember. And I had the pleasure of meeting um, Brendan Brazier at uh, no way. the Sundance Film Festival for the game changers. And he is, I mean, it was, I read his book as well a couple times. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's so refreshingly analytical and fun to talk to. Um, yeah, I, uh, 
he's a, a hero of mine for sure. And that's yeah. really great that you, um, like you said, you, you sort of tied in all these, there's multiple reasons to eat this mm-hmm. way. And it's not just one piece. I think that that makes it far more likely to to become, stick as, you know. Yeah, I, f- I feel like people, once they've kind of made the change, it becomes almost a lifestyle or it is a lifestyle versus just a diet they follow. Like it yeah. has deeper values, you know? Absolutely. Um, speaking of the game changers, so mm. um, you mentioned previously, but you were the chief science advisor for the Game Changers film. And for anyone listening who has not seen this film, go watch it now. It's incredible. I've seen it multiple times. <laughs> um, truly an incredible documentary. Can you describe a little more clearly like what your role um, in the creation of the film was? Oh, sure. Sure. I'm glad you liked the movie. Um, <laughs> I loved it. I, it was so much fun. And um, well, I'll, I'll sort of circle back to your mm-hmm. to your question in one second, but I just want to tell you, I, I spent so much time going through like the interviews of the, and, and so I actually helped sort of prep for some of the interviews, um, Very cool. you know, which questions should we ask? And, um, and I remember actually meeting each of the, the people in the film, all the athletes, um, and some of the, the doctors in the film, again, this was at Sundance. And I remember being so starstruck, so excited that I had spent like years looking at these people, you know, yeah. footage of them and video and, and figuring out, you know, what is it that they're saying? How can we, you know, um, pick the, the pieces that are most easily understood by the audience? And, um, and yeah, anyway, I, I, that was an incredible experience. And I have so much respect for each of those athletes, the doctors, the producers of the film, um, but yeah, so my role was as the chief science advisor. I was also an associate producer. And so, um, you know, we talk about blood flow in the film and inflammation and, you know, joint health and pain and uh, heart disease and a whole bunch of um, different uh, components of how diet and health and performance intersect. And uh, I... I helped establish those connections using the scientific literature. So, um, you know, in terms of what we would talk about and how we would talk about it and which um, studies to present on the screen. And, um, you know, that was, think those were things that I did, um, you know, help, help uh, support those roles. We had the experiments, um, you know, looking at how diet influences blood flow. Um, I was there in Florida when we uh, worked with the Miami Dolphins to, you know, design these test meals and then see how does it actually affect uh, what we call this postprandial lipemia, which is how milky or or not blood is uh, after eating a meal. So working on these experiments, and we had the uh, the infamous uh, erection scene. Worked <laughs> everyone's on, favorite. <laughs> every, everyone's favorite. I uh, worked on that. Uh, just a whole bunch of different pieces. Worked with a bunch of athletes um, in the film and uh, helped develop content for the website. Um, anyway, I worked in a, in a bunch of ways with these uh, folks, and I it, that that goes down as a, a highlight of my life for sure. Sounds like an incredible experience. Um, I guess I, I was going to ask you what was the most exciting or rewarding part of it, but it seems like you basically the entire. Oh, thing I can tell you. It. Yeah. The best, the coolest part. I mean, there were a lot of cool parts. I mean, maybe it was meeting these people who were, who were my, my heroes at Sundance. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was that. Um, and also watching it with them, you know, like sitting uh, next to Kendrick Farris and Dotsie Bausch was right behind, you know, and we're all cheering for each yeah. other when we're like, oh, look, you're on screen. You're on. And I was actually in the original cut. 
that was on Sundance. So I, I had a piece where I was talking in it and they were cheering for me when I was up and I was cheering for them. And so that was incredible. I don't think my palms have ever been so sweaty in my entire <laughs> life. I was just sitting there waiting. You know, the very first time we saw this hit the big screen, because you know how many versions of it we had on mm-hmm. our computers and watching it from home and we were all separate. And then when we finally came together um, and did it you know, together, that was such a rush. But I really do think one of the biggest rushes for me was the uh, the Q and A's, the live Q and A's, where we would, um, you know, we would fly around. We went to a whole bunch of different Air Force bases. Um, we went to uh, big tech companies and screened it there, and huge healthcare companies and screened it there. And I loved getting questions from everyone, from software engineers to medical doctors to, um, you know, it was. That was really, really fun. I love the live piece of it. Um, I hope I get to do that again in some fashion. Um, but I, I was also really touched when I saw, you know, one of the producers sent to me, it sort of collated the feedback we had on social media and just sent me this huge file with people saying the effect that it had on their lives. And I just remember, like, I couldn't work for a couple of days after that. I was like... Wow. That's incredible because you, you can't tell how the things you do. It's really hard to see what work you're doing touches people, right? Like, how do you mm-hmm. how do you measure I, that? How do you see that? Like, you put exactly. something out there and you're not quite sure. Like, how is it actually changing lives? Are people just passively watching this? Like, what's it doing? Exactly. How are they internalizing it? And mm-hmm. um, you know, we can look on Google Trends. That's a fun thing. Go on Google Trends and type in plant based and yeah. see how that changed. You know, what that spike looked like when the when the film came out. That was really cool. That's cool. But you know, there's something really nice about when you work with someone one on, you know, if you help a family member or you help a, a patient of yours directly and you can f- materially see the benefits. But when you do something like this, I don't know any of these people. So to actually see that feedback come in was just like really moving, you know? So cool. No, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's been so many years since it was released, to be honest, but yeah. I'm, I'd like to ask you, um, there's obviously numerous benefits of a plant-based diet um, as it relates to athletic performance and the Game Changers film like goes through all of them in uh, very good detail. But I was wondering if you could just comment on maybe a couple of, that stand out to you, a couple of the reasons that a plant-based diet might be beneficial for performance, whether it's like increased blood flow or reju- sure. like recovery. Like, What do you think are the most compelling reasons? Good question. Um, so... One of the papers that we um, displayed the reference for in the film itself was a 2019 paper that I co-authored in a journal called Nutrients. And the paper is called Plant-Based Diets for Cardiovascular Safety and Performance in Endurance Sports. Um, The truth is that applies to strength sport athletes too. But, um, you know, we sort of broke down the the high level effects. And we can get into any of these or all of these in more detail if you'd like, but um, better body composition is mm-hmm. certainly one of them. Um, and that's for a number of reasons, right? I mean, a plant-based diet, we have generally lower calorie density. So fewer calories per pound, unless you're eating a whole bunch of nuts and seeds, which is great to do too, and dried fruit. Um, but generally we have less body fat. Um, and also we burn more of those calories that we eat uh, you know, you call that postprandial energy metabolism. So we're just, you know, we turn into a furnace after our meals. So we're just burning way more of the food we eat. So that's really helpful. Like I said, better body composition. Um, 
And also that leads to better, you know, relative performance, like relative VO2 max. So as an example, um, if we have the same size engine, uh, and we put it into a light car or a heavy car, the same size engine is going to push the lighter car further and faster, right? So similarly, having less body fat isn't just aesthetically, you know, appealing, Mm -hmm. um, but for performance, I think it really goes a long way. Um, We have, uh, you know, better glycogen storage so we can pack more carbohydrates into our muscles because plant-based diets are full of carbohydrates. And it's a big deal to get enough of those, even though they're demonized because, um, less than half of athletes who train an hour or more a day meet their carbohydrate recommendations. So really? that's shocking, um, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. There's um, really uh, consistent data. Um, we have some of these studies up on the uh, the Game Changers uh, website, but uh, and also in this particular paper, we referenced some mm-hmm. of them as well. Yeah, yeah I, I did see this this particular paper. I'll put in the show notes as well. I believe you. Uh, Dr. Neil Bernard was one of the authors on this one. Yes. And so was um, Jim Loomis, who was... Mm, yeah, uh, he's great. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. I really like him. Um, so yeah, there's that. There's better blood flow, mm-hmm. right? So um, plant-based diets, as you know, are devoid of cholesterol. They have far less saturated fat. People end up with better blood lipids, right? So when you have less fatty stuff flowing through the blood, um, it's less viscous, right? It's less mm-hmm. thick. And so we get better blood flow and that increases tissue oxygenation. So we can get more, more oxygen to the muscles that need it. So that's another plus. Um, there's an amazing study, by the way, where they compare the Atkins diet, South Beach diet, and plant-based diet. Oh. Um, and I think the plant-based diet was Dean Ornish style diet. And they looked at endothelial function, right? The ability for the blood vessels to dilate. They looked at um, C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation. Um, and this is during weight maintenance. So this sort of controlled for, uh, you know, the, the, the weight lowering effects. Mm-hmm. And they found there was better blood flow in the uh, plant-based diet versus the Atkins diet, the super low carb. And South Beach was intermediate. So um, that was a really fascinating study. I loved it. And so again, it speaks to the blood flow, but also to the inflammation. Um, and uh, and that's, that's obviously a big, a big piece of it. There's um, less oxidative stress as well. So uh, eating a plant-based diet, you, you can sort of quench, right? We know, we know free radicals, right? Exercise produces free radicals, um, oxidative stress. This can cause a lot of fatigue in the muscles. It can reduce athletic performance. It can impair recovery. Uh, it can damage DNA and proteins and the antioxidants on a plant-based diet that we get through a plant-based diet can help mitigate this process. So less stress, more recovery. And then, yeah, I think the last piece I would touch on is the inflammation part where, um, yeah, I mean, there are meta-analyses showing that people eating plant-based diets have less C-reactive protein, you know, again, a a measure of inflammation. Um, You know, we have those antioxidants help quench the inflammation. There are specific foods on plant-based diets that have been studied like tart cherries and pomegranates and blueberries, you know, these really deep colored foods, um, black currants, um, even I think watermelon, and uh, they're able to decrease post-exercise inflammation, facilitate recovery. Uh, that can play into joint health too. So yeah, I mean, I could go on, but yeah, there are those, a whole lot of 
things. And these are all, again, these all apply both to health and to performance. So it's, uh, it's really nice when there's sort of a sawed off shotgun approach that just covers everything. Yeah, no kidding. I think that's probably one of the most exciting things is you can be doing the best thing. It's not one or the other. You don't have to choose your health over sport performance. It's like the same dietary choices will get you to both goals. Which, yeah. So just recommend it <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. It's a relief. It's a relief to know you don't have to pick between those. You know, it's, um, I always thought you, you had to, I always thought, you know, you can, cause I would, you know, you think of like a bodybuilder is really, really big. And, you know, some of them, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, drop dead way early in life from, uh, some of the choices that they're making that'll mess with their hearts. And, um, it's really cool to think that it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, you, these people can, if they, if they went, you know, can look like, uh, Greek gods and can be as healthy on the inside as you could ever hope for. And yeah, it doesn't have to be uh, one or the other. In fact, it's nice to know that they, they're synergistic. Exactly. You're making a very good argument for it. Um, and I, okay. I'm always like hesitant to ask about uh, protein because I, I feel like it gets a little bit um, overemphasized um, when talking about plant-based diets and sport performance. It's everyone's first question is where do you get your protein? But I do think it's important to just cover briefly and then, so we won't spend too much time on it. Um, cool. But I guess in general, how much protein, like the athletes you work at, so thinking for more an athletic population, um, mm. how much protein do you recommend that your athletes typically consume per day, like um, gram per kilogram kind of? Um, number there. Um, yeah, I guess we can just start with that. Cool. Um, so as you know, the, the recommended daily allowance for protein is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on what a person's needs are, we move from there, right? So um, an endurance athlete might need, say, one and a half times that a strength sport athlete might need two times that. So if we're looking at maximal muscle mass, maximal strength, um, I would refer to, there's a 2018 meta-analysis and meta-regression. The uh, first author's last name is Morton. Okay. And they found that 1.6, which is double the RDA, 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight um, maximizes the strength and um muscle mass gains from resistance training. So materially what that amounts to is about a nine, I think they said it was a 9% greater increase in uh, uh, strength when we hit these protein targets, if we didn't, you know, versus if we didn't hit those protein targets. Mm-hmm. And there's a 27% greater uh, muscle mass or lean body mass gain when we hit those protein targets. So I also just want to throw out that that 1.6 um, had, I'm going to get nerdy for just one second. I'll come right back <laughs> no, out. I love it. <laughs> had a 95% confidence interval of one to 2.2. So what that really means is, you know, in, in a very simple way is that 1.6 is a great target. 1.6, I would aim for that. And that it's really, um, it could be as high as 2.2. But more often than, you know, I don't think that 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight is really worth aiming for, but you could make a case for why, you know, some people, you know, it might be useful for them to to aim uh, a little bit higher. But I will say this, um, there's research where, uh, and maybe you've seen this paper before, I'm going to butcher the author's last name. It was published uh, last year. The author's last name is something like Heavy Lorraine. 
Um, and they, they took omnivores who uh, supplemented with whey protein. They supplemented omnivores with whey protein. They took vegans and supplemented them with soy protein. Had all of them hit 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And then, and, and, you know, while resistance training. And mm-hmm. there were no real differences in size or strength that came from that. So I really do think 1.6 is a good number to hit. Some people will say, well, shouldn't people who are eating an entirely plant-based diet, shouldn't they get a little bit more to make up for it? Well, I I would say no, because that 1.6, at least in the one study that's ever been conducted looking at this, found that 1.6, whether it was from, um, you know, only plants plus soy protein or only you know, or, or a mixed diet plus whey protein, like it all, uh, evened out. Perfect. Have you seen that study yeah. before? Really? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I have seen that one. I wasn't familiar with the author's name, but I think that was a pretty yeah. big one when it came out, essentially showing that like plant protein has equal effects on muscle protein synthesis as like animal based protein does, which is yeah. exciting to see. Um, are there by the way, one of yeah. the, the, one of the senior authors on that paper, I think he was the second to last author is Stuart Phillips from uh, Canada. He's a huge protein researcher. Um, absolutely huge. I, 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 he might be at McGill. I don't remember. But, I think um, I've heard him on know. a podcast before. I think he was on Plant Proof. He might have been. Oh, cool. Cool. I really like him. I like his work. Um, and I just want to say like, this wasn't some really small rinky-dink study with no um, weight behind it. Like this guy, he's published a whole lot of papers recommending, you know, I shouldn't say recommending, but um, uh, touting the benefits of of whey protein. So it's not like you just have a bunch of like sort of, I don't know, vegan authors who are all just trying to push this one thing. Like this was a really, really reputable study and the best in my opinion of its kind. And um and so yeah, the 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 1.6 I think is really where we land. Perfect. Um are there do you think there are some situations where people or some athletes might need more? And I'll preface this with saying this is kind of a selfish question for me. I'm currently trying to cut weight for sure. upcoming competition. So in athletes that are severely like reducing caloric intake, is there any benefit to increasing your protein requirements in order to maintain like more lean body mass and not like not lose as much protein mass as you lose weight, if you know what yes. I'm asking? Yes, a hundred percent. And the answer is yes. It, it definitely does seem when, especially during a more aggressive or rapid uh, cut, um, that increasing protein uh, can help retain uh, lean body mass. So yes, there's a, a useful paper from I think Eric Helms and a mm-hmm. few other people on, on this exact topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly at that point it can be valuable to hit that, you know, even above the 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. Um, and the more aggressive the cut, it's very possible you'd need to, to go higher. But that said, you know, I, I know the yo-yo game, you know, I, I know how, you know, I've worked with a bunch of wrestlers yeah, and MMA fighters. And I, I do think whenever possible, trying to diminish the amplitude of those waves of weight gain, weight loss would really benefit performance to whatever extent, you know, I, I almost feel like a, I don't know, like a dad or something like, (laughs) Hey, you know, you really shouldn't go out drinking with your friends. Like, nah, like I know what's going to happen. I know people are going to do that yo-yo, but I think that the the biggest predictor of whether you will lose muscle mass or not, um, you know, on the dietary front. So obviously, you know, not talking about whether you're lifting or not is the, the speed of weight loss, the rate of weight loss. So keeping that 
as minimal as possible has a greater effect than just jacking protein up and getting you know, ready in eight weeks or whatever. Okay. No, perfect. That's very valuable. Thank you. Sure. Um, do you think athletes or do athletes need to divide their protein intake over multiple meals throughout the day to like absorb um, the best, I guess, is there a threshold where you can only absorb so much protein at one time would maybe be a better way of asking? Yeah. Good question. There's a great paper. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it off the top of my head. I think Alan Aragon was one of the co-authors on this particular paper. Um, something about the title was something about like how much mo- how much protein can you use in a single meal? Mm-hmm. Uh, something something like that. And um, I guess long story short, if you're getting the amount of protein that you require um, to maintain or build muscle, it becomes much less relevant how you divide it throughout the day. Interesting. Okay. If you're not getting the amount that you need, then, you know, your, you know, the window surrounding exercise, you know, let's say four hours or six hours, whatever it is, like before and after sort of sandwiching your training, that starts to matter more, it seems, when we're not hitting the amount of protein uh, in a given day that we need. Now, it gets a little complicated because once you peak you know, you maximize muscle protein synthesis, you know, you're not going to be able to, to. Yeah. There's there's like a plateau. There's a ceiling effect. Exactly. Exactly. But what is typically understudied, but is really valuable is it's not just how much muscle protein we synthesize. It's also the breakdown of muscle protein that matters. And people usually forget about that part of the equation, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just how much you build. It's also how much you break down. And we can actually suppress the amount of breakdown that happens with these like large protein meals. So, oh. you know, yes, we might ceiling, you know, hit a ceiling with the synthesis, but we can also suppress that breakdown. Um, it seems like eating, let's just say four times in a day, um, chopping that 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight into four feedings of 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. So just dividing the 1.6 by four is a reasonable way to make this happen. You have three meals and a snack. Um, I think that's a, a, a really simple, straightforward way to do it. I have seen no compelling data to suggest that say five meals is better than four or that four is much better than three. I have seen research where they're just feeding like isolated protein shakes to people and you know the same amount of protein all below the 1.6 so when they're giving far less than is needed to maximize this effect um that it was more valuable to divide it up among sort of a an intermediate number of meals i don't remember exactly what it was but it was like four beat out two and also four beat out eight or something like that or ten but this was getting too little protein um to maximize the effect. And it was also purely in supplement form. Um, and that also changes things up. So it's, it's a good question and the jury is sort of out, but I think it's very reasonable to do like breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, or two snacks or omit the snacks completely. Let's say three to five meals that it takes to hit that. Um, but again, it becomes less relevant if you're actually meeting these goals. Okay, perfect. Thank you for being so thorough in your answers. I love it. Oh, oh thanks. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I'd love to 
Um, as well, as I mentioned, uh, your article on creatine was one of the things that I really started to like dive into some of the work you've been doing. Um, so you authored a paper on or co-authored a paper on creatine um, mm-hmm. as it relates to, or essentially if uh, plant-based athletes are at um, a, uh, sorry, um, a disadvantage because they don't sure. consume creatine from like exogenous forces um, or sources, sorry. Um, so Maybe we can talk about that. But before we do, um, I would think it would be helpful to just like briefly review the different energy systems of the body, just just mm-hmm. briefly so that people understand like what exactly, why people supplement with creatine in the first place. Sure. Um, can I tell you, by the way, the reason why I wrote this paper? I came yeah, up with the idea yeah, there. I'd love to. Right when the Game Changers came out, um, you know, I'm not on social media or anything uh, at all. And I know. I tried to find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I hung that up a while ago. But I Smart. I remember. Thank you, thank you. I um I remember someone telling me that uh, other people had been posting on social media about it was like the first criticisms that had come in about the game changers. Like one of them was. Um, you know, they, they pulled up a paper that we had up on screen and it said very tentatively, like maybe creatine could be a disadvantage to a plant-based diet, like the lack of creatine. And it was so tentative the way that this person had, the author was, uh, her last name is Barr. And the way that she presented this, it was like, maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know. But I remember this one hater being like, ah, in their own paper, <laughs> It even says that they might be at a disadvantage. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, I understand what you're doing. I understand that you're trying to use our own stuff against us. I get that tactic. But like, if you read the paper, this author isn't actually saying that. And the truth is, I mean, that was years ago that that, that, that um, person made that hypothesis. It's just not, it doesn't play out that way. Having, not eating creatine is not a disadvantage for athletic performance. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to answer this person. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to answer them, if I'm going to take the time to write this, I might as well publish it. So like, okay, I'll do that. And then I had this little pipe dream where I was like, maybe every criticism we get, I'll just publish a scientific paper about. (laughs) And that that turned out to be really time consuming. So I I decided not to do that. But that that was where this came from. Um, So uh, the the bird's eye view of energy systems and why creatine, you know, how this plays into performance and, and everything is really, really um, brief exercise. Uh, really, so so let's say um, doing uh, five heavy reps in the gym, you know, bench press or squat jumps or whatever, um, uses uh, ATP, right? That's the basic form of energy, the fundamental unit, adenosine triphosphate. Um, and longer duration exercise, you know, uses, uh, glycolysis. So you're breaking down glucose. That's more for like, uh, I don't know, let's say a 10 or 12 rep set and even beyond is going to be predominantly glycolysis, predominantly carbohydrates. Again, that's why plant-based diets also really cool because it helps get those carbs in. And then for longer energy, uh, you know, requiring, uh, you know, marathon running or, or even just, um, I don't know, a 10 K. Um, that's more aerobic. And so we have these sort of three systems, right? We have the, the ATP, which relies, you know, that's the immediate energy system. And that's where creatine will come in. We have the carbohydrate um, reliance exercise, which 
you know, it's like a basic set in a gym and then the longer term stuff. Um, so the reason why creatine comes into this is, uh, you know, like I said, ATP, adenosine, triphosphate, this is the fundamental sort of unit of energy. And the way that we get energy from it is we break off one of those phosphates, right? So we have three phosphates, we break one of them off and in breaking it off, that bond releases energy and, um, that can fuel performance. Um, but then now it only has two phosphates left and we have to throw a third one back on in order for it to be able to generate more energy for us. And so when we consume creatine, um, creatine binds to phosphate, we call it creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine. And then we can, you know, it can break, that can break apart. And then the creatine phosphate can give its phosphate back to the ATP. I'm sorry, back to the ADP, the, the, the two phosphate adenosine diphosphate. And then we have our unit of energy back again. So when we're doing shorter bouts of exercise, like sprints or maximal effort sets, um, you know, creatine can be really helpful. Having, having creatine can be really helpful. Um, it's been shown to increase muscle mass, improve strength adaptations. Um, it can improve, uh, work capacity and a whole bunch of things. There's a, um, the journal of the international society of sports nutrition did a, a really useful position paper on, um, on creatine. And so, yeah, I mean, people who don't eat meat get less creatine in their diets than people who do eat meat. Um, it's, uh, you know, an omnivore will have about 20% more, you know, greater uh, muscle total creatine stores. But um, it just so happens, as I share in this paper, um, uh, you know, the title says it all, which is supplemental creatine, not dietary creatine, uh, appears to uh, improve exercise performance in individuals following omnivorous or meat-free diets. So really, if someone eating meat supplements with creatine, they get improved performance. Um, usually there are responders and non-responders, but usually, you know, there's a really robust improvement in exercise performance and muscle mass. Same thing for someone who doesn't eat meat. Um, and the playing field seems pretty level really, like as far as, um, supplementing with creatine, you know, uh, sometimes people who don't eat, uh, you know, sometimes vegetarians who supplement with creatine, sometimes they, they respond even better to creatine and sometimes they don't. I have a section in the paper on that. Um, but yeah, it just seems like uh, creatine certainly does seem to improve exercise performance, generally speaking. And uh, not getting creatine in our diets is not disadvantageous for, uh, you know, a plant-based individual in relation to exercise or muscle mass or anything. And, oh, and actually on that note, I'm going to run, uh, I'm, I'm about to support a, um, uh, a meta-analysis with, with an awesome research team in Australia where we're looking at um, plant-based diets in relation to exercise performance. Um, and I might help with another one on plant-based diets and body composition. Ooh, cool. And this is all ties in really closely. I mean, really there are there is, there is no disadvantage at all to eating a plant-based diet in relation to, you know, exercise and, and, um, body composition. Um, and we're going to, we're going to research that and talk about that at some point. 
That's thank you for the excellent explanation there. Um, going back to the basic biochemistry, I think it's it. I honestly th- just think it's helpful to kind of set the context so people understand like why you even need greater intramuscular stores of creatine in the first place. So, um, I'm curious. Do you have any theories on, like, I guess intuitively, if um, people following meat free diets, meat free diets have 20 percent less like um, creatine stores, like without supplementing, than someone that is eating a lot of meat in their diet. Do you have any ideas on why we actually don't see a performance um, difference there? Like you think we would almost, you should see something if, because creatine supplementation is so beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. So um, I, I, so I touched on this in the paper, but um, it seems that when our bodies, um, have, I don't want to say a limited supply, but like when, when supplies are precious, we preferentially distribute them to tissues that require them. So for example, with, um, uh, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, we see a greater distribution. You know, if if we're not getting a whole lot of, um, uh, EPA and DHA in our diets, uh, we see greater concentrations in our in our brains. We're basically we're, we're conserving them and sending them to the spots that that could really really use them. So where they're really relevant because our bodies are smart. And the same thing with creatine that um, will send more creatine to our calf muscle, like our gastrocnemius, right? The really explosive, big, beautiful ball of muscle at the uh, bottom of our leg. And so there are. Uh, you know, our bodies can choose where to send these things and where not to. Maybe we don't need as much creatine um, in our facial muscles, for example. So yeah, maybe we have smaller, you know, maybe we we choose to, to our body, not that we choose to, but maybe our bodies selectively don't load. And, and I'm just saying this, this is, there's no science looking at our cheek muscles, but if, um, you know, in relation to creatine storage, but maybe we just don't send them there and we send them to our calves. Maybe we send them to our pecs. Um, maybe we send them to our shoulders and other explosive areas that could actually, you know, use that storage. So I would say something along those lines seems to be what's playing out that when resources are, are precious, we are, um, you know, our our bodies intelligently send them to the places that could use them. That would make sense. I think our bodies are a lot more intelligent than we give it um, them credit for sometimes. Yeah, um, so if someone if someone does feel like they might benefit from supplementing, um, just quickly, what protocol do you recommend? Like, I've, I think it's really like you don't need to do this whole loading phase anymore, right? Like you mm-hmm. can just do five grams a day, just start there. Is that what you suggest? Yeah. I mean, if you were in some mad rush to load as fast as humanly possible because you needed gains crazy fast um, for some reason, then loading would be um, warranted. So Mm -hmm. that would be like five grams, four times a day for five to seven uh, days. But I agree with you. I am not a fan of loading. I don't think almost ever. um, I I just don't think it's necessary to do. I think, you know, it, it all washes out over time, but yeah, about three to five grams a day, um, in general, I think is, is a great amount to, uh, to fill the muscles with, with creatine. And there's an added benefit of doing it. I mean, not that we need to take that much to affect this, but, um, there's a something called homocysteine, which is, um, 
having too much of this can be a problem for cardiovascular health and taking uh, even a gram a day of creatine can bring down abnormally high levels of homocysteine, which can have sort of a health benefit too. Not that everyone has these high levels, but for people who do, um, creatine can be helpful in that capacity. That's fascinating, I wish I actually. That in nutrition school. Yeah, that's that? fascinating. That is yeah. interesting. Um, and I think there's more research coming out now on the potential benefits of creatine for like brain health or cognitive um, performance enhancement and those sorts of things. So I'm not yeah. too familiar with that side of the research, but I know it's it's being in-depthly studied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Um, Do you take creatine, by the way, Cassie? I'm just curious. I, I have in the past. I'm not currently. Um, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, I should always start again. But I didn't notice a huge difference when I was on it before. And I think at the moment, just the water gain you get with it sometimes yeah. wouldn't be ideal for me. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking if you're cutting right now, yeah, <laughs> it would probably work against you to do that in this yeah. moment. But do you take it yourself? Um, I uh, sort of like you. I guess I go back and forth. Um, I I I go through cycles of all the different things that I do. Where sometimes I'm really excited by uh, improving, you know, markers of longevity, and I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And <laughs> sometimes I'm like, yeah, but I really want to you know, get my squat max up. And so I just go through these cycles of different things that I'm pursuing and I pursue it a hundred percent. And so creatine comes and goes along with, with these awesome. sorts of things. Okay. I have to ask, what are you um, pursuing right now? What's your, your thing at the moment? Like in, in life or? In uh, like sport performance or like, are you working on like a maximum squat or what? Oh, um, well. Training these days. So, you know, honestly, what I'm, what I'm, what I started doing and I'm really excited about right now is, um, I've been, I've been learning a lot about, um, as much as I can really about the circadian rhythm Mm. and what I'm working on right now. So I think of it sort of like a swing, right. Where if I can really, um, kick hard at the one end of a swing and then kick hard on the other end, you know, sort of pump my legs, I can really increase the, the amplitude of that. And so what I've been doing I've been focused more on how I feel throughout the day recently and how energized I am when I wake up and how quickly I pass out when I go to bed at night. So what I've been doing, and I'm really giddy about it, is um, I've been waking up uh, just before the sunrise and I've been jumping rope um, facing east. Uh, And I've been doing this each morning, rain or snow or, or, you know, clear skies. and it's been the coolest thing ever. I mean, I love it. I've been doing it for like 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, there's a pier that juts out into a river that runs through our town. And, um, and so I've been just focused mostly on that, on, on how like that sort of thing paired with these ridiculous looking orange tinted glasses that I have, <laughs> I have some of after the sun goes down. You have them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for me, that's been really fascinating. I've been really interested in um, learning about uh, neuroscience as it relates to sleep and, um, and yeah, just jumping rope in the morning, you know, that sort of thing, like just trying to ingrain these habits one at a time so that I have them for, for my life at some point, we'll see if my family's cool with it, but I want to, you know, once the sun goes down, I want to, um, just go candlelight, you know? And, um, I don't know, I have a eight year old and a seven year old and there's a decent chance we'll burn the house down doing that. Um, (laughs) but if we could not do that, I would love to, dial in the circadian piece. So as far as like performance, I guess what I'm looking at right now is more sleep and wakefulness. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm still training 
real hard and really eager to go up to the mountain in the next few weeks and uh, backcountry ski. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, the exercise piece is, is always uh, fun, but yeah, for me right now, the, the circadian is what's exciting. That's cool. That could be a, a whole entire podcast on itself, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I promised we'd circle back around and touch on True North again, and then we'll kind of mm-hmm. wrap it up here. But cool. um, so, yeah, you already mentioned True North Health Center. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, in California, you were saying? Yeah, Santa Rosa, California. It's like okay, wine country. Perfect. Okay. And people go there essentially to do medically supervised prolonged water fasts, if I'm understanding correctly, right? Yeah, they go to water only fast. Um, sometimes they'll, you know, do permutations of that, but it could be, I mean, as long as, and it's not that everyone goes and fasts for 40 days, but it could be as long as a 40 day water only fast. Yeah. Crazy that I feel like that alone seems so like, um, surreal for people to kind of wrap their heads around, but, uh, I guess like, do you work there in person? You see these transformations, like what type of people typically come for these water fasts? And then I guess, what are some of the benefits that you see when they um, resume eating again, following the fast? And so I I know you, you actually sent me a recent study that you just published in nutrients that I read through last night. Fascinating on like some of the cardiometabolic, like the um, Mm -hmm. uh, biomarkers that can change following fasting. So yeah, maybe just talk about this for a little bit. Sorry, my questions are all over the place, but it's an exciting topic. No, it's cool. It's a fun topic. It's a really fun one. So I, I want to say that the fast goes hand in hand with the diet that, you know, if we fast and then we resume our standard American diet of processed junk, the benefits of that fast um, are are blunted dramatically. And it's almost sad, really, because it's not easy to get yourself to fast for an extended period of time. So kind of want to extract every ounce of benefit possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, you said what kinds of people will go in and do that. Um, almost sadly, I think it requires people to have their back against a wall to, to really take care of their health. And so we get a lot of people who had really serious chronic diseases that they sought traditional medical treatment for and couldn't, um, you know, that, that was insufficient to help them through. And so this was like a last resort for a lot of people. There were also a lot of people who were really forward thinking and who came in for sort of maintenance and, and, um, just self-care. It's the only place people have, that I've ever worked at or, or been or seen where when you come back from a vacation from that place, you actually have more energy, you know? Uh, you feel relaxed. I think most people overbook their vacations and there's so much stimulation, but here it's like sort of being in this recuperative womb and you have all this energy coming out of it. So yeah, there were a lot of people of a lot of different ages um, and lots of different medical conditions. Um, the, you know, a long time ago, I helped to co-author a paper on a, a woman who is a case study of a woman who had a chronic headache, just would not go away. It was debilitating. And um, she fasted and and it really eliminated that headache. It was really great. And she continued to eat a a whole food plant-based diet, a really healthy one without the sort of added snares. And, um, and she's doing great to this day. They, I mean, so there's, there's 
you know, a lot of misconceptions about it. They, they published a safety study showing it's really actually really safe to do this under medical supervision. It would be a really bad idea for people to do an extended fast at home without medical supervision, because when they start to eat again, it can develop refeeding syndrome, which mm-hmm. can really be lethal. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's an incredible place. And yeah, the paper that you read um, in Nutrients that I had the pleasure of, of co-authoring, um, yeah, they showed that there was incredible potential for, for long-term improvements in cardiovascular risk markers. Um, they looked at uh, it was blood pressure. They looked at a fatty liver index, um, high sensitivity CRP. So, you know, related to a whole bunch. I mean, it was uh, cholesterol mm-hmm. as well. I think they, yeah. I, I don't I, remember off the top yeah, of my head. BMI but. was one of the main ones, I think. And then, yeah, the yeah. their lipid panel essentially. And then insulin resistance as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. You, oh, it was you read it more recently. It's like very yeah. like in my head right now. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, it's great. And um, I'd love to to support more of their research. They're really getting into it now. Um, they're ramping up their research efforts. Uh, Tasha Myers is at the helm of their research efforts and she's fantastic. Um, and I, I'm probably going to reach out to her this upcoming week and see what else I can do to help them with their their work. They're, they're wonderful. Yeah, um, very and cool. like I said, if you have a chance to ever go there um, and intern, I, I really think you'd love it. I mean, it's it's such, like I said, working at Facebook headquarters was a really unique experience. This was just like, there's no place like this. This is where we raised our kids for the first couple of years and just an amazing environment wow. with, with people who have yeah. wonderful stories to share. And we saw, I mean, extraordinary improvements. Like there were people who were so, their blood sugar was like, I mean, through the roof. They just couldn't, they looked, I mean, it was just the, the, the extent of type two diabetes was insane. And then after they came off, uh, you know, they went, by the time we sent them home, it was normal. And like to, to see that effect in that period of time is just, I didn't know that that was possible. You know? Wow. I guess it, it comes back to that. Like what we were talking about before is like when you give your body is more intelligent, I think, than we give it credit for sometimes. And if you remove all the the bad things and just give it a chance to heal, it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Being, yeah. I would love to visit there one day. I'll have to look into that for sure. Um, you would do great. And if you, <laughs> if you ever do, I'd, I'd be honored to introduce you to um, the founder, Alan Goldhammer. Uh, he'd, he'd love you and I'm sure it'd be a good fit. So yeah. Um, Is uh, Dr. Michael Clapper still there or still he's involved? He's not. No? He's not there anymore. Uh, when I was there, he was there and um, he's really fun to, yeah. uh, to talk I've to. He brought yeah, him so in to do a couple lectures for some of uh, my medical um, classmates. Yeah. He's, he's really oh, cool. Great. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's um, he's uh, really inspiring, and he's he's been in the game for a while, and mm-hmm. he's really pioneered. That's cool that you uh, that you work with him too. He's really he's really humble. Like he's accomplished so much, and he's really down to earth. And uh, yeah, he's definitely a hero for sure. So I have to relate this back to athletes and fasting. So maybe not so much water only fasting, but a lot of athletes these days are engaged in intermittent fasting protocols, whether it's um, a time restricted eating window or like, um, like five, two, there's different protocols. How do you like, I guess, what are your thoughts on athletes engaging in fasting protocols? Do you recommend this or do you think it can hinder performance or is there sure. some um, kind of So first I want to ask, is this in the context of um, bulking, cutting? Obviously that will affect, you know, limiting a feeding window. Yeah, true. True. Um, 
I guess let's just say someone that isn't in a particular phase of their training that's just trying to like maintain like where they're at, um, whether. Hmm. Okay. Maybe the better way to ask this is there, are there any populations of athletes where you working with them think that fasting is a good sure. thing or that you'd recommend so, yeah. so, so that they engage in it? Yeah. As long as an athlete is able to get the amount of calories that they require to sustain their performance and improve their performance. Um, I mean, that, that needs to be a given, right? So if that, if that is the case, then we can choose how to distribute their meals um, so that it's best for them, right? So um, okay, there are very clear benefits, as I can see, of time-restricted feeding where we're doing everything we can to front load or eat majority of food of calories earlier in the day and less uh, later in the day. So that seems to match that circadian rhythm. There are, you know, clear benefits to, um, to getting this, right. You call it chronobiology, getting that really, getting it right. Um, and so, I guess this relates a little back to the circadian rhythms that you were talking about. So, um, it gets a little bit complicated if an athlete, let's say, trains hard at night and then will need to train again the following morning. Like they'll, they will certainly need to replenish their fuel stores in between those training sessions. If it's, you know, like an eight hour period, that's where, you know, resynthesizing glycogen, getting carbs back into the muscle can, and the liver can really be important. But, um, yeah, I think as long as someone is able to get the food that they need and distribute it, you know, they hit the protein targets we were talking about, you know, if you were eating in a eight or 10 hour window in a given day and generally front loading it, I think that's, that's a really healthy thing to do, especially if training is, you know, around those times. Um, there's, there's also, um, really interesting research looking at, um, what was it? It was like eat, it was like train train uh, low, compete high. And they're sort of looking at what happens if, for example, we give someone two training sessions in a day and one of them is just plugging away like low intensity, steady state. And you allow for their, you know, let's say it's first thing in the morning when they're carbohydrate depleted from the, or not depleted, but low from the night's fast. And then they just burn out whatever's left of these carbohydrate stores during this low grinding away, you know, moderate intensity exercise. They can sort of upregulate these um, adaptive mechanisms. They can they can learn to extract more energy from the you know their uh, they, they can they can perform better. Say, um, and then if you have them do a more intense session, but just before that you've fed them really well. You know, it, it seems like there there's some potential promising. Um, uh, you know, options available. I think that they talked about this also in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics position stand. Um, it's just really tentative and early on in this regard. But I do think that um, people overestimate the importance of meal timing relative to meal quality. I think a lot of people are saying, you know, as long as I eat in this eight hour window, I'm set and it doesn't matter what it is. I really do think that the quality matters a whole lot more than the timing. And that said, you know, 
limiting what we're eating to say a 10 hour window in a day, whether we're an athlete or not, I think is a really valuable thing to do. I do think that, like I said, front loading is valuable. Um, but that athletes can certainly thrive in this way. Some of the research on this, which I think started to come out around 2018, um, is when it, you know, um, maybe a little bit before then, but right around then it, it wasn't really well controlled, you know, where, you know, if, if we have people, uh, limit their feeding window, sometimes, you know, that will affect their macronutrition. It will affect their total energy intake. And, you know, if you put this in the context of exercise, it gets a little complicated, but I, I, I don't think it's as important, um, for performance as, uh, as it's oftentimes hyped up to be, you know what I mean? Okay. No, that's a, that was a very good answer. So essentially like my takeaway from that is as long as you're not falling into a caloric deficit essentially because you're trying to like maintain like a very strict eating window or um, as long as you're meeting your protein needs, meeting your caloric requirements, your athletic performance should not suffer as a consequence of restricting eating to 10, yeah. 12 hours, eight hours, whatever it is. Except if you have like you're training late at night at the end of your feeding window and then training again at the start of your feeding window and you're getting that extended duration exactly. and you're not replenishing. And that there could be some promise to that whole train oh. low, compete high. You know, there could be some, I mean, yeah. the, the well done research in that capacity is shows promise. So, like it shows like that actually could be really useful. So, but that requires some really dialed in tinkering. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, and I, I really do think mm -hmm. that for okay. the most part, if everyone eliminated late, late night snacking, I think that just, is a win for, for almost everybody. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And sure. I think <laughs> just in terms of sleep quality also for recovery, you know, just leaving like three or four hours after eating, you know, before going to sleep, I think there's, there's some, some value to that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's a fascinating field and I think it relates more to health than to performance. Um, but yeah, it's increasingly well studied. I mean, even, you know, 10 years ago, less than that, there was no research looking at this in relation to body composition or strength outcomes or anything like that. So it's, it's really becoming um, on the front of a lot of people's minds, which is cool. Yeah, no, very, very cool. Um, I have to ask, I think I read online somewhere, I'm not sure how long ago it was, mm -hmm. but it was in some interview you did where you mentioned that you oh, only yeah. eat every second day. Was this true or is this something you oh, still practice? Oh, I did practice? it. I did that. I that was when I was curious. at True North, actually. Um, and I did that for, for quite some oh, okay. time. I've messed with all of these. I mean, I've, um, you know, I've tried the 5-2 uh, diet, right? Where you eat five days a week and then you fast for the other two. Um, I've done the alternate day. I've done the one meal a day. Um, I'll do each of these and I'll just see how I feel. And, um, I'll track things like heart rate variability and see what, you know, what changes and, uh, you know, exercise performance related measures. Um, I had a, a Tendo unit I was using to track, um, power output. And so there's lots of things that I, I like to tinker with these things. I'm not doing alternate day fasting now. Um, I, I, the reason I came out of that was there, um, the effects on LDL, uh, right. The quote, bad cholesterol were not as, um, impressive mm -hmm. with alternate day fasting as with just simply eating earlier in the day. And I, I, if I had to bet, I would say some of that comes down to that. If you're eating every other day, you know, you're eating a big breakfast, a big lunch and a big dinner, 
And it seems to me that our bodies fare better with the big breakfast every day and with the small dinner every day. So you get the benefit of the big breakfast, but you also get the detriment of the big dinner. And by the way, when I say big dinner, I just mean calorically. Like even now, my dinner is a big dinner. It's just like a huge vegetable stir fry. Um, so it's a massive quantity of food, but just, you know, fewer calories. So I, I, I just want to distinguish what it looks, you know, visually a big dinner versus calorically a big dinner. So I, I feel like that's, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's why I, um, don't imagine I'll go back to alternate day fasting anytime soon. I, I'm a big, um, uh, it, getting LDL as low as humanly possible is something that is important to me. So I, I don't imagine I'll do that again, but I, I, right now I'm more in like a 8am to 3pm feeding window with breakfast, just being massive. And I know I'm in a good place when I go to bed, if I'm like sort of fantasizing about food a little bit, not too much, but like, you know, excited to eat the next day. Yeah, exactly. I really like being in that rhythm. That's a really good place to be in. So that's where I'm at now. And I, I'm, I'm happy. Very cool. Very cool. No, this has been so incredible talking to you. I've learned a ton. Um, I didn't even get to some of the things I wanted to ask you, but I really appreciate like the the thorough answers and your um, your ability to oh, really relate it and reference all the science. For everyone listening, I will definitely link all the studies you mentioned. I'll make sure they're in the show notes below so everyone can just click on them and dive deeper if they want. But um, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there any one thing that you'd like people listening to take away from this conversation? Or... I guess anything that I didn't ask that you want to just get oh, out there. Um, I mean, I'm not like trying to drive anything home uh, in particular. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you too. I guess nope. what I'm curious about is you have an upcoming fight. This is like a big one, right? This is. Um... Yeah. So I've fought. Um, I'm still mm-hmm. amateur. I'm not professional. I've mm-hmm. fought um, amateur Muay Thai. I've had like 11 Muay Thai fights. My mm-hmm. most recent one was back in 2019 though. And since uh, being in medical school, I've recently started training mm-hmm. at an MMA gym up here in Edmonton. So I'm actually making my amateur MMA cool. debut in December. So that's what I wanted <laughs> so to ask. December that was my 17th, question is so, I am um, really excited to cheer mm-hmm. you on and I wanted to know how can I like, where, what do I do to get there? Like, how do I see it? Do I, is it going to be streaming somewhere? Um, (laughs) yeah, it should be streaming. I actually think, uh, the Mm. fight card is unified MMA. So they're one of the, I guess, premier MMA fight cards in or promoters in Canada. So I think they actually stream through UFC fight pass. So I can definitely, I would love that. Send you a link when I have more information. That's, um, that's, um, that's, that's my, uh, my, parting requests. And I just want to tell you, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I think wow. what okay. you're doing is incredibly exciting and that you're, you know, straddling the worlds of medicine and uh, athletics and that you're both um, hurting and healing <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's wonderful. It I love, I mean, the contrast <laughs> is fantastic. It's like fasting and feeding and sleeping and waking. And it's, 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 you know, yeah, there it's you go. polarizing <laughs> in, in, in in I think a really beautiful way. And it's, uh, you know, anyway, I, I just, I think it's really, um, fun and exciting and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here in this space and that you're, um, uh, so enthusiastically sharing information with people and learning as much as you can. And you're going to be a wonderful, uh, physician. Um, so anyway, thank you for. Thank you. I appreciate that.
like I say, it's uh, thanks to all the people like yourself that's been publishing research and putting out these incredible documentaries and getting the word out there. And it's just following in the footsteps. So awesome. it's been it's been good and I appreciate it. And I truly appreciate the time you've spent with me this morning. It's I know we good. went a little a longer pleasure. than thank expected, you, but thank you. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope it was valuable to you. Please remember to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and links to connect with our guest. If you would like to support what I'm doing, the best way to help me grow the show is to subscribe, of course, but also share it with your friends and family or on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also leave a five-star review and or a comment. A special thank you, as always, to Tyler Gatto for composing the theme music for the podcast and to Wyatt Pavlik for the excellent audio engineering each and every episode. So until next time, keep training hard, keep eating plants, and take care.